So because mm-hmm. my my belief system is, listen, if you want to be in the mob, or you want to be associated with the mob, you know, if you if you if you do X, Y, and Z, A, B, C might happen to you. You know what I mean? So you know you gotta you know you have to follow the rules, and the rules are you know you don't beat up wise guys' wives or mothers. So in the seventies, I used to run around on Neil's son Buddy, Ella Croach. He would now Neil was the underboss of the Gambino family. I was very very tight with his brother. We were hanging out with this guy named Louis Baja. He was a, um, a Puerto Rican kid. He was a big coke dealer, and uh, and he was he was a friend of ours, and he was hanging out with us, and he started dating Tony. And Neil found out. And Neil found out. And but he was doing it on the sneak, cause I told him to stay away from her. He was told to stay away from Tony. Basically, we all told him to stay the fuck away from her. It's Neil's daughter, you know, stay away from her. And he didn't listen, you know. So he told my father was going on, and my father was okay. We'll uh, we'll take care, you know. We'll take care of it. So we were setting up Louis Baja to be married and what happened was he we owned the bar my brother and I owned the bar in Ozone Park called Mar Benny's and one night he was in there Louis about two weeks before we were actually going to do it and he was in there and two of my friends that knew what we were going to do to Louis Baja were in there with Louis and they thought they could like impress my father so it was raining out so they took Louis Baja out of the bar and they shot him in the head but he didn't die All right, so as many of you know, I was recently on tour with Michael Francis, and he spoke very highly about Anthony. Anthony has been on his channel. He's been on DJ Vlad's channel. I've watched all his stuff, and it's going to be an epic podcast with some mind-blowing stories. So first off, huge thank you, guys, Anthony and Bruno, for being with us today. And we, we like to start out in the, in the thick of the action rather than just going back to where you grew up and all that stuff. <laughs> And, yeah. and the, the the story that stuck out to me the most was it was like a scene straight out of The Godfather was how your brother-in-law was executed. Are you okay to take the viewers down that path first, please, Anthony? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's a big part of my story. I mean, it changed my life, actually. Not at that time, many years later, actually, it changed my life. Yeah, you know, um. My brother-in-law Frankie, his nickname was Kiki. He was a he was a tough kid. You know, he was from the neighborhood. He, his parents come from, came from Italy. Uh, he was a he was a, an armored truck robber. He had a partner named Peter Sicaro, who was also another dangerous kid. And uh, you know, they were mobbed up. Uh, they did some time for armored truck robberies. Um, they committed a few homicides together. And they were two dangerous kids. And um, my sister started dating him. And uh, at that time, when she started dating him, uh, Danny Marino, who was a captain in the Gambino family, came to see us and told me, advised me that his to have my sister not socialize with him because he's he's a bad kid and tell my sister to stay away from him. So I told my mother and my sister what Danny said, but my sister, she didn't want to hear it. And she continued dating him. And eventually they got married. He introduced her to drugs. Um, they started doing some drugs together. And like I said, he was a dangerous kid. 
Um, so then at one point, um, I was, my sister became pregnant and um, they had a baby. I was actually in treatment at the time because I had a, I had a little problem with, with a, I had a, uh, with cocaine and I was addressing my issues. I was in a treatment center and um, my mother, my sister had a baby shower. And the next morning I called up my wife who lived upstairs because we lived upstairs from my mom. My mother lived on the first floor and I was on the second floor. I called up my wife to see Alice to see how the party went. And she says to me, you don't know what that son of a bitch did. Uh, he, I, I heard screaming last night and I ran downstairs. He was choking your mother. She was on the floor. And I said, what do you mean he was choking my mother? And um, she says that he ran up a bar tab for like seven or $800 after my mother had already paid for the party. And when the owner gave my mother the bar tab, my mother said, what is this for? And she, he said, your son-in-law was... Uh, buying everybody drinks, and he told me to give you the check. So when my mother got home, he confronted her, and he attacked my mother, and my wife had to jump on him. She scratched his face in a whole big scene, and then he ran out of the house. So I was, like I said, I was in treatment. So when I got out of treatment, um, when I got out of treatment, I went right to see my father's partner, Tony Lee, who was a made member of the Gambino family. He was my father's partner because my father was in prison. And I went to see him, and I told him, you know, this Frankie beat my mother up. And he says to me, I know. Just like that, he went, I know. I said, what do you mean, you know? I said, what, what do you mean, you know? What are we, you know, what, what are we going to do here? And he said, we're going to kill him. And, you know, and that was fine because that's the life that we lived. And I said, all right, you know, so what are we going to do? He said, well, you're going to have to go to visit your father and get permission from your father. He has to okay it because we're going to put it on record because, you know, Dominic's going to do it. He wanted Dominic to get credit for it because Dominic was proposed and I was proposed. It's all, it's funny how in the mob is protocols to commit a murder. I mean, uh, uh, because it's a, uh, it's a sanctioned thing. It's work. It's, it's part of the, of what you do. So you have to get permission. You have to put it on record. It has to go to the boss. And the boss eventually has to okay it because if they don't okay it and you do it anyway, then, you know, your life on the line because, you know, homicides bring heat and it's a whole big procedure. So the first step was I had to go visit my father. So I went to visit my father and I told him what happened. And he says to me, what does he think? I'm dead. <laughs> so I said, no, he don't care. You know, he's a bad kid. He, he just don't care. You know, uh, I don't know what he thinks. So I told my father what the plan was, and he said, do it, and he okayed it. So I went back to New York, and I told Tony Lee my father okayed it. And at that point, my father, Tony Lee, sent for Jeannie Gotti, who was a captain at the time of, of the Gambino family, and we told Jeannie what happened. And uh, Jeannie said, okay, I'll go tell my brother. And he went to John, who was the boss, John Gotti. And the next day or a day later, Jeannie came back and he told us uh, his brother okayed it. And his brother, you know, was very close to it. John was very close to us. You know, we have a different relationship with him. We knew him when he was a kid. He really loved my mother and uh, and, he, and he loved my father, of course. And so, uh, so he okayed it. And then we put a, put a plan together. And uh, you want me to explain the plan? Yeah, <laughs> on, on this channel... We like to get as much detail as possible. Some of our guests, they say, I'm going to cut a long story short. And I'm like, no, no, no. All right. make well, it long, I'll... make it long. Yeah. So, so uh, 
you know, like I said, he was a dangerous kid. It couldn't have been like we couldn't just roll up on him on a street corner and gun him down in the street like you see on TV. You know, he was a dangerous kid. He really had to be done. Um, we had to really reel him in and make him feel comfortable because, uh, you know, he was a killer. You know, he was dangerous. I mean, um, and so uh, we uh, we put a plan in place where he was a thief. We knew he was a he was an armored truck robber. Like I said, he was an armed robber. That was basically his thing. He was a thief. Uh, so we uh, we planned. Um, we told him if, we told him that Tony Lee knew of a safe house of drug money in South Ozone Park. We don't know how much money was in there, but we know that it's where the drug de- drug dealers keep their money. So uh, we we told him that, and then um, we told him Tony wanted to explain it to him, and then we sent for this guy Tommy who had a boat, and they were, and then they after the murder they were going to take his body out on a boat and dispose of him in the in the Atlantic Ocean. So what happened was we told him about this score that we had a safe house that had money and uh, Tony Lee wanted to speak to him. So I called him up the day before and I said, listen, Tony Lee wants to meet you tomorrow morning at Cafe Liberty. He wants to tell you what's going on with that situation I told you about. He said, all right. So that morning I, um, I picked him up. You know, it's funny, you know, when I talk about it, because actually it didn't even phase me back then, you know, like I, I, I picked him up and he came out of the house and he had shorts on and a t-shirt. And uh, he got in my car, you know, we laughed. He kissed me on the cheek, hello. And, you know, and I'm sitting there with him and I'm like, I'm driving this guy to his death. Like, you know, like it was like the sun was out. It was a hot June day out. You know, he had shorts on and a t-shirt. And uh, I drove him to Cafe Liberty. And when I pulled up, um, Tony Lee's brother, who was another soldier in the Gibino family, Mikey Gal, he was sitting outside waiting for us. And we got out of the car and I walked across the street and Mikey got up off the chair and he came over and he hugged Frankie and he kissed him. Hello. I'm happy to see you. Another guy knew he was going to die. And, you know, I wasn't nervous up to that point. I was pretty calm up to that point because I, my, my part in it was really important because I had to bring him there. So I had to stay like really calm and I couldn't like let my hand be known because if he had any kind of inkling, you know, like anything could have happened. So so my job getting him there was to keep him calm and, you know, keep him, you know, so I, so I got him there and I didn't feel anything until I walked in the door and he was in front of me and he walked in and Mikey was on the outside and the door locked from the outside and the door closed and I heard Mikey lock the door. He didn't hear the door lock, but I did. And when I heard the door lock, I got a little nervous at that point, you know, I got a little nervous. And um, when I walked in, there was three people at the bar. There was a counter. It was uh, this guy, Freddie, who later on became a soldier in the Gambino family. This guy, Dominic Pizzoni, Skinny Dom, who's now a captain in the Gambino family, and Tony Lee. At the, and they had a, a dish with bagels on it and coffee, and they were, having, they were eating bagels. And we walked in. You know, they all saw Frankie. They hugged him. They kissed him. Hello, we're glad to see you, this and that, blah, blah, blah. You want a bagel? And he said, no. And uh, Tony says, all right, come, come in the back. I want to show you my garden. Because in the back of the club, Tony Lee had a big vegetable garden. He had a green thumb, Tony Lee. And he had a, and so we went back there, you know, we went back there. He took a, it was like a scene in a movie, really. He took a paper bag and he walked out into the back and he was picking tomatoes and putting them in the paper bag and just talking to Frankie about, how, you know, just bullshitting to Frankie. 
not about anything important, just regular chit chat. And he was put a couple of tomatoes in the paper bag and he goes, yeah, bring these home, you know, for, you know, for you and Francine, who was my sister. And he handed Frankie the bag. As we walked out of the, the garden, we got back into the back of the club and as we were walking, Tony Lee grabbed Frankie by the hand and said, I want to talk to you. And I just kept on walking. And Frankie stopped and I walked out to the front. And when I walked out to the front, I looked at Dominic and I gave Dominic the nod and Dominic reached underneath the countertop and he took out a revolver and he put it behind his back and he walked into the back. And then I just heard pop, 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 pop. I just heard a couple of shots. And then I looked and I saw Frankie laying on the floor and Dominic came out and he said, and he looked at me and he goes, this fucking guy don't want to die. And he put more bullets in the gun and he went back in. And then as I was looking, I saw Dominic just pop, pop, shot him a couple of more times. And um, then he came out and I worked in, my father had a big number office, like a lottery office. It was illegal, like a bookmaking type thing, but it was numbers. And I, and I, I worked in the office during the day and we walked out and um, Tony says to me, just to go to work, make out nothing happened, go to work and then I'll come see you tonight. And I left, I went to do my regular routine and uh, they took his body and they put it in a, in a sleeping bag, which I had bought the day before. And they put him in the trunk of Dominic's car. So I went to work that day. And then a couple hours later, my sister called me to tell me Frankie never came home. Where is he? I said, I don't know. I dropped him off on the corner. He made a phone call and I don't know where the hell he is. So I had to go by our house and I went by our house that night and his parents were there. And I actually took his father to go. I mean, this is how insane the mob is, right? The, I actually took his father that night to go look for him, knowing that he was in the trunk of the car. So I took her, I took him. And then the next day, um, I wasn't on the boat with Tony Lee. You know, I knew what I, the next day they took him on this guy, Tommy's boat, and they took him out into the Atlantic Ocean and they wrapped him up and Tony Lee punctured his lungs and cut open his stomach because they didn't want him to float up to the top and they threw him in the ocean and he's never been found. He hasn't been found. I mean, they never found his body. And, uh, and then that was in, uh, that was in 88. And then in 05, I got indicted for the murder. All right, Anthony, we've got a few questions on this story then, because it is one of the most fascinating stories that's ever been told on this channel. And I'm interested in getting a few bit more detail. So when you're leading him to his death, how fine tuned do you have to be into his senses and, you know, how how fine tuned do you have to be to detect any slight little change in in his attitude to what's going on? Well, first of all, when I got in the car, I made sure he had no weapons on him, and he didn't. And I, how I knew that is because of the way he was dressed. He had a, just a little white t shirt on with shorts on, shoes, no socks. So I knew he had no weapons on him. So that that right away was was you know was good. Um, yeah, I had to be fine too because I mean I had to bring him there no matter what. I couldn't like say if I even if I picked up on something, I would have to get him there and then had to some way let them know that something's up. But my I, as long as I felt as long as I stood calm and um and and I just act naturally, everything would go smooth and uh and I could tell by his expression he he underestimated me. That's what it was. And I knew that. I knew he underestimated. I knew he felt that I wasn't maybe, and I'm not saying this, I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying, I think he didn't think I was capable of that. 
because he thought he was a tough kid guy and everything. So I think he sort of underestimated me. So it made my job a little easier. That makes sense. And uh, so I know as long as I stood calm and, and just carried on a normal conversation with him, you know, I had him. And, and, and that's what happened. And I had him and I brought him there and, you know, and, and uh, I walked him in. Bruno? Yeah, that was a very good question, Sean. I, I have a second part to that. So he had to know what he did. You know what I mean? Prior. So by him being hypersensitive and you kind of giving him the, uh, you know, the laid back attitude, going on the boat, doing whatever you're doing, that had to make him feel a little more calm. But in your opinion, Anthony, did he, he had to know what was going on at some point. And, you know, did he, he didn't give any type of, you know, inclination that, you know, he knew he was in some kind of trouble for what he did. Well, I don't think this is, what happened was my mother never told my father. My mother was scared of him. This is what happened. So there was more to the story than him just beating up my mother. Prior to him actually laying hands on my mother, he was shaking her down for money. He was taking her to the bank. There was other incidents that happened. He, he, um, so and she was in fear of him. And she was in fear of him hurting us, me or my brother. So like after the incident happened and I found out I... I my mother, I could see she was a nervous wreck. And at one point I told my mother, Ma, you know, what's wrong with this Frankie? And she went, stay away from him. He's crazy. He'll hurt you. Just forget it. So she was in fear. So she never told my father. My, I think he just felt that we didn't say anything to anybody. I think he thought we were scared of him. He knew he, he, he didn't think my father knew. Because when he first started dating my father, my sister, his partner, Peter Sakara, told him, listen, this is Fat Andy's daughter. You need, you know, you better think about twice dating this girl. But that's what he did. He also dated before my sister, Sonny Francis's daughter. He dated Michael's sister before this incident. That, and, and, you know, and he dated Danny Marino's niece before this incident. So his pattern was to date wise guys' daughters or relatives because I guess he felt that was a shell for him. So I think he underestimated me. I think he never realized my father knew because of the, the fear my mother lived in. Because I'm telling you, he, he showed no inkling of what I, where I was taking. He was laughing the way he was dressed. He had no weapons on him. And he walked in there with a smile on his face. So I, don't, I think he just underestimated the whole situation and really believed that he had my mother wrapped up. And he knew Alice told me, but I don't think he thought I would take it any further. So, so Anthony, the more I hear the story, the more I'm convinced it's, it's that classic scene out of The Godfather, you know, the abusive brother-in-law. What makes these people think they could get away with beating up women and being abusive to the mom? of someone who was so prestigious in the mafia as your father. What, what, what is going through these guys' minds to think they can get away with that disrespect? You know, I, you know, he, he, he had a drug issue. I think, I think alcohol played a part in that, that evening. You know what I mean? I, I think he was, he had a few drinks in him that night, but he just thought he was invincible. You know, listen, he knew the deal. So, you know, um, the reason why he died was he, he knew the deal. He knew that he was going married to Fat Andy's daughter. He knew she was my sister, and he knew what my father was capable of doing. Even though, my, but maybe he felt my father was in jail and he couldn't put it together. 
you know, I don't know what he thought, but but um, he just thought he was invincible, and you know, to move just not not to change the subject, but so he he knew the deal. Like a a couple of years later, my sister started dating another kid named Chris from the neighborhood. He was just a regular kid. He wasn't mobbed up. He didn't know nothing about the mob. He was just a kid. He liked to use drugs. He was hooked up with my sister. And they were and they got arrested with a stolen car and some credit cards. They had gotten arrested. So I got my sister out on bail and everything. And I went to see my father. And uh I told my father what happened. You know, he knew my sister got arrested and everything. And uh and he told me, he got your sister arrested. Does he know? Does he know that she's my daughter? I said, Dad, this guy don't know nothing about why. This guy, he's a kid from the neighborhood. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, you know what you got to do here, right? So I looked at him. I go, you know what I got to do? I said, you want me to kill the, clip this kid? He goes, yeah, you know what you got to do here? I said, I said I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm not going to. I said, what do you? I told my father, yeah, you know what we'll do that? This is when he really got mad. I said, you know what we'll do that? We'll kill everybody she goes out with till she meets a brain surgeon. And then, you know, and then we'll have a big wedding. I told him. But now he gets mad. Now, now he got, you know, he got mad. He goes, ah, I'll take care of it myself. Forget it. Don't forget it. I'll take care of it on my own. Don't do nothing for me. I'll, I'll take care of it. I said, all right, then you take care of it. So I got back to the neighborhood and I sent for this kid. I said, listen, you better run away or do something because you're going to go. I said, you know, and he just like you could see the panic in the kid's face and I never saw the kid again after that years a couple of years later I got a letter from a guy that was in prison in upstate New York and he said listen there's a kid here named Chris that said he used to date your sister do you know him so and then I knew the kid was still alive I said yeah he's a kid and the reason why I gave that kid a pass and the reason why I helped save that kid was because he didn't know the deal Frankie knew the deal this kid didn't know. This kid was just a neighbor. If this kid would have knew the deal, then he would have got killed. So because mm-hmm. my my belief system is listen, if you want to be in the mob or you want to be associated with the mob, you know, if you if you if you do X, Y, and Z, A, B, C might happen to you. You know what I mean? So, you know, you gotta, you know, you have to follow the rules. And the rules are, you know, you don't beat up wise guys' wives or mothers. Obviously but he just off. thought he was invincible, and and he underestimated me, and and he walked and he walked in there like uh, he walked right in without any kind of issue. Wow! Over to you, Bruno. Okay, you know, uh, yeah, growing up in Brooklyn, and you know, growing up around everybody, you know, there's, yeah. there, there's a couple of rules you don't break, Anthony. You, you know, you try yeah. to avoid dating any wise guy's daughter. You know what I mean? Or anybody, yeah. so even even talking to somebody's wife is, uh, you know, it's frowned upon. I know, yeah. So, you know, how, you know, it's almost like the girls, they go after these guys knowing that the fathers are going to be mad. You know what I mean? And that's how everybody, so explain to us how everybody gets, you know, everything's connected. I'm not talking about, you know, just in the mob. I'm talking about, like, you know, you're hanging out with, with five different dudes and your sister or your, your buddy's sister, you know, you, you want to go out with it, this and that. Tell everybody about the unwritten rules about going out with somebody's ex-girlfriend. Is that how, is that how the dynamic yeah, you know, works? Listen, like, all right, so, so, so in the 70s, I used to run around with Neil's son, Buddy, Ella Croach. He was, now, Neil was the underboss of the Gambino family. I was very, very tight with his brother. 
Now, Neil had a daughter named Tony, a very attractive girl, was crazy about me, used to th- want to be, you know, and I, you know, like we would be out in a club, right? We would be out in a club and, uh, and we would be all out partying and then it'd be the end of the night. And she would ask me, would you drive me home? Now, I never drove her home without another person with me. So I would say, I would say, all right, Louie, take a ride. She goes, no, you just drive me home. And I went, what are you fucking crazy? I'm not driving you home alone. Your father. Because now Tony, two people got killed over her. I remember two. that. Yeah. One guy, they rolled him up in a rug and burnt him in a lot. Another guy, Louis Baja, we had the contract to kill him. He was a coke dealer that hung out with us. He was going out with a, Neil gave my father, my father, we set him up to get killed over her. So, you know, so what I, what, what the protocol is, you don't do that, but you know what? I mean, it happens like if, if someone comes to you and says, listen, I really like your daughter, your sister, you know, as it if I take her out on a date, you know, if you're okay with it, you're okay with it. But if you're not, you know, and you tell them, no, it's no. The thing is, but a lot of guys in the mob think even though the girlfriend's the ex-girlfriend, they're still the girlfriend. You know, like like I know guys that wanted to kill people. Though. Like I know there was a couple of guys in the Lucchese family that were going out with one of my friend's ex-girlfriends. They wanted to kill each other because they didn't think they should go out with them. Ronnie Onearm, I'm sure they hear that name, Ronnie Onearm. He was a captain in the Gambino family. He went out with this girl, Donna, and when he broke up with her, another guy, Robert, started dating her, and he wanted to kill the guy because he was going out with his ex-girlfriend. It's like uh, they marked their territory. I don't know if that answers your question, but, yeah, it, it, it's not, you know, it's something you don't want to do, but it does happen, and, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not. I mean, I, my sister, another a friend of mine dated my sister, Frankie. He was my partner. But, um, you know, he, you know, I know him, I knew him, we all grew up together and I knew it was a respectful thing. And I was glad she was with him instead of the other bums that she used to date, you know? So, uh, I you guess said, it's a, an individual preference. You I said, never, you said, I that, never did. you said that you were commissioned to set up the guy to be killed, the boyfriend. Did that happen? And if so, how did it happen? This is what happened. So, we were hanging out with this guy named Louis Baja. He was a, um, a Puerto Rican kid. He was a big Coke dealer. And, uh, and he, was ha- he was a friend of ours, and he was hanging out with us. And, uh, and like I said, Tony, Neil's daughter, and her brother, Buddy, were very close with me. And they, we used to all go out together. All of us, you know, we used to go to discos together. And he started dating Tony. And Neil found out. And Neil found out. And but he was doing it on the sneak because I told him to stay away from her. He was told to stay away from Tony. Basically, we all told him to stay the fuck away from her. It's Neil's daughter, you know, stay away from her. And he didn't listen, you know, so he did it on the down low. So uh, Neil sent for my father. He knew that we were friends with Baja, that we could do it. And he told my father what was going on. And my father goes, okay, we'll uh, we'll take care, you know, we'll take care of it. So we were setting, so we were setting up Louis Baja to be murdered. And what happened was he, we owned a bar. My brother and I owned a bar in Ozone Park called Mar Benny's. And one night he was in there, Louie, about two weeks before we were actually going to do it. And he was in there and two of my friends that knew 
what we were going to do to Louis Baja were in there with Louis, and they thought they could like impress my father. So it was raining out. So they took Louis Baja out of the bar and they shot him in the head, but he didn't die. He was crippled, like he got, he, got, he he became an invalid, and uh, he went back to Puerto Rico, and he passed away a couple of years later. And my father wasn't happy with them. Don't get me wrong, because uh, they uh, the way they did it, and the fact that he didn't even die. So you know, they thought they were going to impress my father by doing it because they knew what the, the situation was. And so Louis Baja got shot, but he didn't die. He was uh, maimed, and uh, he unfortunately he passed away a couple of years later in Puerto Rico. But we were gonna we were gonna do that. Her other boyfriend, her other coke dealing boyfriend, her brother killed him. Buddy killed him. They and they threw his body in a lot. So you know you don't you don't really want to go out with these guys' daughters. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's not. There's other women around that you could go with. But like I said, but my in my brother-in-law's case. He thought it was like a, a shield because that was his thing. You know, he went out with wise guys, daughters or nieces. I'm, I mean, he, he, that he thought like that was a, a good thing or a shield for him that it was going to save him. But in the end, it, it got him killed. Over to you, Bruno. Okay. So, uh, Anthony, I want to ask you, you know, uh, switching gears a little bit, you mentioned that you were away for a little bit of a coke problem or you had a drug problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, back in back in the 70s and 80s, I think everybody was doing coke. You know, I, I was one of them as well. How did your crew perceive you after you went away to get a little help? Was that considered you being a little, uh, you know, tainted or, you know, I don't know if I'm wording it correctly, but did they have... Did anybody frown upon that? Can you give us a little insight on that about what no, you're going no, with that? No, I, every, I mean, my crew, everybody was happy for me. Listen, when I got out of treatment, when I got out of treatment, I got out of treatment on a, I, I mean, I, I spoke about this numerous times. When I got out of treatment, I got out of treatment on a Wednesday night. I flew back home on a Wednesday night. Saturday, Saturday, I knew John Gotti, who was the boss now, ate lunch every Saturday afternoon at the Bergen Fish, Fish Club. He held court there every Saturday afternoon. So I got out of treatment. I, I, I wanted to go say hello to him, of course. You know, he knew I was in treatment. I went there with Tony Lee, my father's partner. We went to the Bergen Fish Club. We went in. He sees me, he hugs me, kisses me, right? Um, we have lunch. After lunch, he says, come outside. I want to talk to you. I walk, now, this is John Gotti. He's the boss. We go outside, and he looks at me. He goes, how do you feel? I said, I feel good. He goes, do you think you got a beat? Right? Just like that. So I look at him, you know. So I go, well, I'm not going to do any of it today, I told him. <laughs> you know, just for today, right? I said, you know, I said, well, I'm not going to do any of it today. He goes, okay. He says to me, uh, what can I do for you? I don't want, you know, what do you need? You need anything? I don't want you stressed out. Now, this is the boss of the most powerful crime family in the country at the time. He's asking me what he could do for me because he doesn't want me stressed out, right? So I says, well, I need a, I don't have a car. I didn't have a car at the time because, I don't know, my car got wrecked. And, you know, I said, I don't have a car. He goes, you don't have a car? I said, no, not yet. I got to go get one. He goes, all right. He goes, we go back in. He goes in. So next to the Bergen Fish Club, he had an office. And, and, and he goes in his office and he makes a phone call. He comes out. And he goes, okay, listen, go to 84th Street and Atlantic Avenue, and there's a car lot. He goes, go in there and ask for a guy named Anthony. He says, and he'll know, he's waiting for you. I said, all right. 
So Tony Lee takes me to this car lot on Atlantic Avenue. I get walk in and I go to the guy, you Anthony? He goes, yeah, I said, John sent me. He goes, John sent me. goes, look around, let me know which car you want. Whatever, take whatever car you want. He told me, right? So now I'm in this car lot. I'm looking, of course, I'm looking for a Cadillac now, right? I'm looking around, right? Uh, and I'm looking around and I see this beautiful back in the day, you know, this is 1988, right? I see this beautiful white four-door Bonneville, Pontiac Bonneville, beautiful car, white, saddle, leather interior, right? So I tell the guy, how about that car? He goes, you like it? I go, yeah. Boom. Puts the plates on it, you know, whatever. I drive off the lot. I go back to the Bergen Fish Club. I show John the Bonneville, right? He says, all right. He goes in his pocket and he takes out $2,000. And he says to me, here's $2,000. He says, I want you to come here every Saturday with $100. And he went, and don't fucking disappoint me with his finger. Because if you ever see his films, he's always pointing with his finger. You ever see the films of him? Like, you know, the surveillance pictures? He used to talk like this, and he used to point with his finger. And he says, and don't disappoint me. I said, no, I'll be here every Saturday. So I went back the next Saturday. I gave him 100. I went back the second Saturday. I gave him 100. The third Saturday, I go back. And... um we go for a walk and he tells me, how you doing? I go, I'm doing good. I go, I'm doing good. You know, I'm back to work. I feel great. I, you know, I was looking better. I, I put on weight. I was dressed nice. You know, I was starting to feel like my old self again. You know what I mean? And you could see it. He says, well, you look good. I go, thanks. He says, how much more you owe me? I said, well, would this would this make 1700 He goes, okay, keep it the rest for a gift. Nice. So, you know, so, you know, like, I mean, here's the boss of a family, you know, and treating me like I'm his son, you know, like, so what it was, was I think a lot of people were happy because, you know, before, before that, I I, I knew that life, I was good at it, you know, and I was good at it, and people made, and I was good at it, and everybody knew I was good at it, and I was Fatty Andy's son, so I think a lot of people were glad because it benefited them too. Not only me, it benefited them too. Like it benefited Nikki Carrazzo, who was a captain, you know, who, uh, who I got later on got indicted with a few years down the line. We got indicted on a big case in Miami. So a lot of people were rooting for me because they knew that I was capable of certain things that would benefit everybody at large. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Some people you know, bed wrapped me and all that shit, you know, junkie and this and that. But but overall, I think the people that really cared about me were happy for me and were rooting for me. All right. We're going to go back to the beginning now, Anthony, and just take your story through the order of things happening. And let's start with your family history, you know, Murder Inc., your dad, how he started out, you know, doing his scams and then he got incorporated <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah. So... My father was born in 1926. In 1932, his father passed away. My grandfather, he got hit by a trolley car in Brooklyn, and he died in the street. He bled out in the street. So now my father was, my father was uh, eight years old when his father died. At that point in time, my father's friends, my father lived in East New York, which was a very mobbed-up neighborhood. Um, at that point in time, my father's two best friends were this guy, Larry Abendando and Lenny Dodona. Larry Abendando's father was the Dasher. He was a member of Murders Incorporated. He got, if you Google his name, the Dasher, it all comes up. He got the chair with Lepke and all them guys. He was one of the main killers. And Lenny Dodone's uncle was Happy Mayoni. He was another member of 
Murders Incorporated, who, who Abe Rellis gave up for the murders, and they all got the electric chair with Lepke. So his two best friends had relatives in Murders Incorporated. So my father was raised by these people. So he was in and out of the houses. Later on, he hooked up with Tony Lee, who later became his lifelong partner. So he was always around mob guys, and he had no father. So they were the sort of the people that he looked up to. And he was a tough kid, you know, from what he tells me, he was a tough kid. He said he learned how to fight because in Brooklyn, everybody were Brooklyn Dodger fans. I know you like soccer over there, but you know, we like baseball over here. So my father was a Yankee fan. My father loved Joe DiMaggio. So he told me he learned how to fight really good because he used to have to knock out all the Brooklyn Dodger fans because he was the only Yankee fan in the neighborhood. He said so. That's how he learned how to fight good. So, uh, so anyway, he was a tough kid. He got drafted in, he got drafted in, and he got drafted during the war when he was 18. And, um, you know, he had no father. He had, you know, his mother owned the candy store, my grandmother. And uh, he went into the service at 18. He got drafted and um, he was in basic training down south and he had a very abusive sergeant, a Southern guy who kept calling him racial names, Guinea Wop, and, you know, abusing him and everything. So uh, my father stabbed him. He waited from one night to go to the, into the latrine and he followed him in the latrine and he stabbed him up and he hitchhiked back to Brooklyn and uh, he came back to Brooklyn and my grandmother made him surrender and he surrendered to the, to the MPs and he went to prison. He went to, uh, he went to Levensworth for a couple of years. The war ended. He got out of Levensworth and he was only home six months. He went back to prison. He got arrested in Brooklyn. He went back to prison and in prison in Sing Sing, he hung out with a lot of wise guys in there. This guy, Chrissy Ticker, took him under his wing, who later became the underboss of the Lucchese family, took him under his wing and, you know, started schooling him. But when he got, when he got out of Sing Sing, he hooked it back up with Tony Lee and they had no money. And they started robbing poker games in Brooklyn, poker games, small dice games. And um, they robbed two poker games. They robbed this guy, Tony the Sheik's poker game. He was a, at the time a soldier in the Genovese family. He later became a captain and they robbed this guy, Charlie Wagon's poker game, who was a wise guy with uh, Albert Anastasia, with the Mangano family at the time. So what happened was after they robbed Charlie's poker game, he sent for Albert Mayoni, who was Happy Mayoni's brother, the member of Murders Incorporated, that I told you about earlier. And he asked Albert, who is this kid Andy that's robbing these poker games and everything? Who is this kid? He says he's from the neighborhood. So Albert said, yeah, he said he's Liberty's kid brother. Now, my Liberty was my older uncle, Frank, who was my father's oldest brother, who everybody in the neighborhood knew. So he said, that's Liberty's kid brother. He goes, that's Liberty's kid brother. He says, you think you could get the money back from him? So Albert told him, listen, there's only two things you could do with this kid. Either you could kill him or give him a job. He's not giving you back the money. It's out of the, there's no way he's going to give you back the money. So Charlie says, could you bring him here to meet me? So Albert said, I'll try. So Albert told my father that Charlie wanted to see him. So my father went there with Tony Lee. Tony stood outside with guns. He said Tony was in the car outside with, with two pistols. And my father went in by himself and had a conversation with Charlie. And Charlie took a liking to him and made a, a, my father instantly became Charlie's driver. So my father started driving Charlie around. 
Now, my father at the time was a kid. He was only 23 or 24 years old. He was a baby. And, um, and um, he said one day he was in the bar with Charlie and Charlie took him outside to come outside. I want to talk to you. And my, he took my father outside and Charlie asked my father, he said, listen, if I ask you to kill somebody, would you do it without asking any questions? So I told my father, yeah, he goes, so I said, what did you do? He goes, well, I, I looked at him. He goes, and, and I said, yeah, you know, I said, yeah, you know, if it's, you know, I definitely, you know, I said, yeah, I wanted to get straightened out. He goes, you know, I knew the deal by then. And I, and I told him, yeah, I said, and then he said uh, about a couple of weeks later, um, they picked him up at his mother. Cause he still lived with his, he still lived home with his mother. He wasn't even married to, he still lived home with his mother. So they picked him up at my grandmother's house with a, Charlie and another guy in the front seat, and there was another car following them with Charlie's brother Danny was driving it, and my father got in the back seat, and they pulled out, and my father told me when we pulled out and got away from grandma's house, he goes, I whispered in the guy's ear. I said, you whispered in the guy. I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, you whispered in the guy's ear. What do you mean you whispered in the guy's ear? And he went like this with his hand. He goes, I whispered in his ear, and I said, oh, and, and that was the first hit he did for that family. And then after that, Charlie introduced him to Albert Anastasia. And then he did a couple of more murders for Albert. Um, and then uh, the books were closed at the time, but he was a special case. This is a picture. I don't, you can see this. This is, a, that's, this, is a, this is a picture when he was 26 years old. My mother's pregnant in this picture with me. This is when he just first got straightened out. This is a portrait that John Gotti had made for me of my wow. parents. John had that made for me about 40 years ago. Yeah. So anyway, they took him to see Albert Anastasia and, uh, and Albert used to call him the kid. He said, Albert used to, he said, Albert used to call me the kid. I used to go meet him. He used to give me a pair of gloves and a, and a gun and say, go down there and, and kill that guy. And, uh, and, and he, and that was it. You know, Albert was the high executioner. So because he did so much work for them, he, he, he got strained out when the books were closing, when his name went around. So now when you get straight, when you get proposed, they put your name on a piece of paper and they pass it around to all the families, the five families, and everybody has to approve it to see if anybody wants to put in any beefs or claims that you shouldn't, you know, you don't deserve to get straightened out. And what happened was this guy, Tony the Sheik, actually put in a beef that he didn't want my father straightened out. So they had to sit down in Manhattan with um, Tony the Sheik, a captain from the Genovese family and Albert Anastasia and Charlie and this guy, Tommy Raven, who was the ca captain. And my father had to sit at another table because he wasn't straightened out yet. So he sat, but he could hear everything. And Tony the Sheik told Albert Anastasia that my father was an animal. He said, this kid's an animal. He shouldn't get straightened out. He's an animal. He robbed, he has no respect and on and on and on and on. And my father said, Albert Anastasia was just like staring at him. And then Albert Anastasia told Tony the Sheik, he's an animal. So Tony the Sheik goes, yeah. He spoke broken English, Tony the Sheik, because he was from Italy. He goes, yeah, he's an animal. So Albert Anastasia said he's an animal. He goes, well, who the fuck you want me to straighten out, priests? <laughs> so like that was the end of the conversation. You know what I mean? Like, and that was it, you know? So, and of course... My father got so my father got strained out in 1953, the same year I was born. The books were closed. Him and another guy, Frankie Martin, got strained out. There were special cases, and uh, that was the beginning of my father's uh, 
induction, you know, into the mob, you know, as a main member. Bruno, you got any questions about his dad? Yeah. Um, so as far as your dad went, he sounded like uh, sounded like just one of the normal guys we grew up around. Yeah. How did you feel, you know, when you were younger, you know, uh, eight, nine, ten years old, you see your dad, he's got the nice clothes on. And, you know, did you know right away, Anthony, that this is what you wanted to do with your life? I mean, did you, you know, did you, did you see all this and be like, this is it for me. This is what I want to do, dad. Period. You know, how did that, how did that play out? So when I was a kid, like seven, eight, nine years old, I didn't know what he did. I knew something was different, but I didn't know why. I knew something was, wasn't right. I, not, I, I, not in a bad way. I just knew something was different. Like he was not home the same hours as my friend's father's. And you know, he would take me with him on the weekends to bars he owned and how he got treated. When he walked in, he was like a celebrity and guys, people would stick money in my pocket. And, you know, I got, had the run of the bar, you know, like nobody told me nothing, you know, so I always knew there was something different. Even when I went to school, like, you know, you go to school and the teacher, you know, you have that one day, like, what does your dad do for a living? And you got to get up in front of the class and say, my dad is a fireman, you know, like, you know what I mean? Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon, company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. So, like, I had those days. So I would ask my father, Dad, tomorrow I got to tell the class what you do for a living. You know, what do you do for a living? And he would look at me and say, I work, tell them I work in a dry cleaners. I press clothes. Now, I knew that wasn't true, even though I was eight, nine years old. But, but I said it anyway. But I didn't know what was true. But I knew that wasn't. But I didn't go any further. Like, well, that's not what you do, Dad. I just didn't say anything. And that's what I would say. And because he would say that, because he did own, he was partners in a couple of dry cleaning places with this Jewish fella that was around him. So I, so he did own a couple of them and he was on the books there as, you know, no show jobs, but I knew that was bullshit, but I would run with it anyway. When I was about 13, I left the block, you know, cause back then in New York, you know, we all hung out on our block. You know, I mean, to a certain age, you know, everything was done. You know, we played all the games, stick ball in the street, ring Olivio, everything was stoop ball. Everything was on the block. There was no internet. You know, it wasn't like today. Everybody sits in front of a fucking TV or looks at a phone. We were in the street all day. You know what I mean? Running around until your mother, hey, get in the house. I'll kill you. Get in here. You son of a bitch. Start yelling out of the window, you know? So, so um, you know, I tell my mother, I used to tell my mother, my sister, I said, if this was, if you were, if we were, if I was a kid today, you'd be in jail. I used to tell her. <laughs> the beans that she used to give me. So anyway, so now at 13, I ventured off my block. And I started hanging out by this pizzeria on 101st Avenue. 
And when I got there, the older guys used to whisper, that's Fat Andy's son. That's Fat Andy's son. And that's when I started to find out who he really was. That I, so I learned who he was through the older guys in the neighborhood when I branched off my block. And then I, and then I, then, you know, him and I started having conversations and then, um, then a couple of newspaper articles, he had gotten indicted on a case in Brooklyn and he was in the newspaper. So that's how I learned about, um, who he was and that he was, uh, I still didn't know a lot about the mob and the protocols. And I just knew he was, a, you know, he was a gangster. You know, I knew people feared him and I knew how he got treated with a lot of respect but, um, but, you know, I was a kid, I was 13, I was smoking weed, you know, I was just, it was the 60s, you know, I was listening to rock and roll, I didn't know, you know, I thought I wanted to be a Beatle, then I wanted to be, you know, uh, I, you know, then I wanted to be Sonny Corleone, you know, I was very confused <laughs> when I was a kid. So, uh, so anyway, when I was 16, I got suspended from school. Now, at this point, I knew he was a wise guy from, you know, being in the neighborhood. And now he had already introduced me now to John Gotti. And a lot of wise guys, because when I started hanging out off the block, he took me to all these social clubs to tell them, hey, this is my son. If you see him, you know, look out for him. If anything happens, don't hurt him or, you know. So he took me to Charlie Wagon's club. He introduced me to John Gotti. He took me to all the clubs in the neighborhood because a lot of wise guys had clubs in my neighborhood. And he took me to all these clubs and introduced me to everybody. That was my first meeting that time. That's the first time I met John Gotti was when I was around 13 years old. Um, I already knew Charlie Wagons because he strained out my father. So I knew him my whole life. But I, I just had, I met John later on. So when I was 16, I got suspended from school and um, he wouldn't talk to me. He, you know, he didn't want me in the street. You know, he didn't want, I was his oldest son. You know, he didn't want me in the street. Um, but uh, he wouldn't talk to me. So I called up my uncle Frank, who was Liberty, who years ago got, you know, Charlie. So I called up my uncle Frank. I said, listen, he don't want to talk to me. I got suspended from school. You got to come here. I want to go to work. So my uncle Frank came to the house and we had to sit down in my kitchen. And I told my father, my father said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to work. He goes, you want to go to work? He goes, okay, I'll get you in the Bricklayers Union. Back then, that was a big union, the Bricklayers Union. I said, yeah. I said, Bricklayers Union. I said, I don't want to be no bricklayer. He goes, you don't want to be a bricklayer. Well, what do you want to do? I, I said, I want to work for you. And he looked at me and he, I'll never forget like it was yesterday. This was 1969. He sits back in the chair and he looks at me and then he leaned forward and he, with his finger, he went like this. He went, you want to work for me? He says, well, remember one thing, going to jail is all part of the job. And, you know, here I am, now I'm 16. I'm already fucked up in the head. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm I want, you know, and I sat back and I go, hey, you know, that, that was fine. I said, all right, well, whatever. He goes, all right. The next day he took me to this guy's club on Merrick Road. His name was Philly the Pimp. I don't know. I don't think he was a pimp, but that was his nickname, Philly the Pimp. He had a blackjack game, and that was my first illegal job. Put me in the blackjack game to work. And I loved it, you know. And then what happened was he tried to still try to discourage me because a, a couple of months later, he took me with him to this bar in Brooklyn called the Five O'Clock Lounge. It was on Church Avenue in Brooklyn. I'll never forget this. And we walked in. It was a Friday night. And the bar was packed, packed Friday night, packed. Music's playing, the jukebox going, you know, packed. And we walk in and every hey, Andy, hey, Andy. And we're, you know, now I'm only 17, but I could drink now because I'm Fat Andy's son. You know, I order a drink, he orders a drink. I'm sitting at the bar and we're drinking. And 
about an hour or so goes by, I don't know, and all of a sudden he says to me, look around. So I look around, he goes, you notice anything? I go, yeah, the bar got kind of empty. He goes, yeah, didn't it? He goes, you know why? I don't know why. He goes, because I'm here. I said, because you're here. He goes, yeah, because they don't know if I'm here to kill somebody, smack somebody, shake somebody down. He goes, this is how you want to live? That people don't even want to be in your company? So he actually thought that was going to deter me. I fucking loved it. I was like, whoa, this is this is the greatest thing since ice cream. I want that too. You know, like I, I was like, whoa, like it blew me away. To this day, I got goosebumps right now. This is a lot of years ago. This is 1970. You know what I mean? Like, and it, the bar emptied out. Like just a couple of people stood in, but he, so he actually thought he was hoping that that would like discourage me that I don't want people to feel like that about me. But I, it was the complete opposite. Like I was blown away by it. And then, you know, and then, uh, and then he just kept on putting me work. Then I went to work in dice games, crap games. Then he started schooling me about the mob. He started taking me. Then he took me to Mulberry Street. I met on Neil. I met Neil. and started meeting all the captains. And I met Neil, the underboss. And I started going to the Ravenite. I started hanging out with Neil, somebody. You know, then I started getting arrested. And then I went to prison in 78. When I went to prison in 78, a couple of days before I turned myself in, they had a big party for me at the Ravenite, a going away party at the Ravenite. It was like in the movies, like in Goodfellas. So I get dressed up, suit, a suit and tie. You know, me and my father, we got all dressed up, suit and ties. We get in the car, we pick up Tony Lee. We meet my father's crew, Nikki Carrazzo, and all these guys who later on became big names. Now they're bosses, counselieries, you know. My father straightened all of them out. They were all in his crew at that time. They were kids. And we go to the Manhattan, to the, to the Ravenite. We walk in, Neil had a big spread for me. And all, it was like, a, it was like, a, it was like I was going away to Harvard. That's what it was like. I, hey, hugging me, kissing me, telling me when you go to jail, don't talk to nobody. If anybody says they know me, you make sure they know me. And, you know, all that bullshit. And, and it was like, a, and we had a party for me celebrating that I'm going to prison. So here I am, 23, I just got married and I'm off to prison. You know what I mean? For the first time. And like, you know, that was the beginning for me. So earlier on, Anthony, you mentioned that the question was put to your father. If you were asked to kill someone, would you do it? You know, you've been described as a Gambino hitman. You've already talked about some murder conspiracies. But going back to when the crimes escalated to the level of homicide, did that question, was it presented to you? And how did you mentally adjust to be engaged in a, in a murder conspiracy for the first time? It wasn't, it wasn't presenting me to that, that way. The first time I was involved was, like I said, with Louis Baja. So my father came to me and said, listen, we got to, uh, we're going to, Louis Baja's got to go. He's something to that effect. He goes, Louis Baja. And like I said, why? And he said, because, you know, Neil with Tony. And I said, okay. You know, it wasn't presented to me like, do you want to do this? You know what I mean? Could you do this or are you okay with it? Um, so I guess he just knew I would be okay with it. I don't know. It wasn't presented me to it wasn't presented to the same way Charlie presented it to him. It was presented it to me like, listen, uh he he Louis Baja did what we told him not to do, and now he's got to pay the price. So we're gonna set him up and and that was it. The next time it happened, the next time it happened. Um, before my brother-in-law was with um, I would uh, 
this guy Bobby Glasses and this guy Frankie Gish that killed two guys in a bar. Um, Jamaica William Pete Gotti's daughter was in there. Um, and they had a meeting in the bar. I was sitting there and and uh, John Gotti, my father, Pete Gotti, Angelo Quack Quack, and Johnny Coniglia had a meeting in this bar and they were talking at a table. And then my father called me over and he said, sit down. And I sat down and he looked at me and he goes, listen, because Frankie Gish, I, ha- I was in business with him. He said, Frankie Gish got to go. I said, all right. And then they told me the plan that he was going to meet me and Johnny Coniglia was going to shoot him. So I just got thrown into these conspiracies without real, nobody really asked me if it was okay. Basically he just, my father just assumed that I was his son and I was going to go, you know, I wasn't going to not go along with it. So I just got thrown into him and it was, you know, and, and it was okay back then, you know, listen, them things didn't phase me back. You know, I, but, you know, I, 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 I talk, you know, I went out for dinner with guys knowing like they were going to die that week, you know, and they were sitting at the table with us, you know, like, and I knew that, you know, they were going to die that week and they were, they were only out to dinner with us because, you know, we wanted them to, you know, not see you coming, you know, and they, you know, we're sitting there. Here I am sitting at a table with guys eating dinner. And I knew like Thursday, this guy was going to get killed, but that's the life, you know, that's the life, you know, Sammy, the bull talks about, you know, as, as he, he talks about it a lot, like, you know, like, like about the murders he committed, you know, like, and I feel the same way he feels. He goes, listen, these people knew the deal. You know, they knew the deal. They knew that, you know, you, this is the mob and this is what happens if you do the wrong thing. So, you know, they steal from you. They do whatever they do. With it. So, the, you know, my father used to tell me anybody, whoever he killed, deserved to get killed. But I mean, that's just maybe how we justify living that way in our own head. You know what I mean? Like, like my father used to tell me murder only counts when you get out of bed in the morning and go kill somebody and then come home and have dinner with your family. He goes, that's work. He goes, well, if you're drunk and you do it or you do it out of anger, he goes, that's murder. Yeah. You know, like, for, you know, so it's just, a, it's just, that's the way it is. I don't know. I don't even have a word to, what is it? It is what it is. Part of the job description. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit. And I want to ask, you said you went to the joint in 78. Is that yes. correct? First time. So walk us through when you got in there. Uh, where did they bring you? Did they bring you downtown Brooklyn? Did, did you go straight to the joint? Could you walk me through your first, you know, your first well, couple first of The first time I went to prison was 19th March of 78. I, sur- I, had a, I had a case out in Nassau County. I got convicted and I got sent this. I had to go upstate. So I turned myself into uh, to the Nassau County jail, to the courthouse. And then they put me in the Nassau County jail. I stood there a couple of days. They sent me to Sing Sing. There was a Sing Sing back then. There was a transit block. I was in transit there. And then uh, I got a number, a state number from Sing Sing. They sent me to Dinamora, to reception in Dinamora. I was in Dinamora for a while. I was up there with a, with a couple of guys. I was on the court with a few guys. I was in Dinamora for a few months. Then from Dinamora, I went to Comstock, which was Gladiator School. It was a fun place. I went to Comstock. And I was there for a couple of months. Then from Comstock, I went to Elmira. And then from Elmira, I winded up going down to Staten Island, to Arthur King. But, you know, I did a good bit back then. You know, back then it was different than this today. All the cops, the COs were on the take. You know, like we had plenty of food. You know, anywhere I went, 
wherever I went, there was someone waiting for me with a package with, you know, whatever shower slippers. And, you know, I was very comfortable in there. You know, I, I you know, people looked out for me. I, I have new people every, every jail I was in. I knew somebody. My father always came to visit me. Um, that was always an event when he came to visit me because the COs and everybody knew who he was. And it's funny because I was in Elmira and uh, uh, one of the, and the inmates jumped the CO and they broke his arm. So they locked us down. They locked down the whole prison. And beknownst to my father, he came to visit me that day. So I'm in my cell. I, I'm in my cell, right? And two COs come, because now the whole prison is locked. Two COs come to my cell and go, listen, your father is in the visitor room and he don't want to leave until we bring you down there. Now they're scared. They go, oh, yeah, what do you want from me? They go, listen, we're going to bring you down there for five fucking minutes and then you're coming back. I said, all right. So they cuff me up. They cuff me up, right? They bring me out of my cell. Boom, boom. And, then, and I go in the visiting room and there's my father. In the, I said, what are you doing? He goes, ah, what am I doing? So he just, uh, then he just sees me for a couple of minutes and then he leaves. He may, he wouldn't leave. That's how like they were like, oh shit, what are we going to do? They figured he'd wait for them by the house or something. So they brought me down. So anywhere I went back then, I did, it was very, it was very, the CEO's hat. It was, I'll tell you, it was so good for jail. When I was in Art to Kill, Tommy Bellotti, who got married with Paul Castellano, he was good friends with my father. So in Art to, so he comes from Staten Island. So where Art to Kill was, there was a, he had a bar and grill up the road from Art to Kill where all the COs used to go there. He used to send me buckets of tomato sauce with steaks in them. And, every, and the CO used to bring me them. And he used to send me them from his restaurant, Tommy Bellotti, that got killed with Paul Castellano. So I was very comfortable then. It didn't really phase me. Then I got out. I got out in 80. I was going back and forth to Florida with my father. And he got arrested in 84. He got went to prison. And then I got, and then I, then I, then I went away, you know, I got clean in 88. I committed the murder. And then in 90, uh, 89, I got arrested again. I got arrested for uh, a state RICO for um, numbers, the policy business that I ran with my father. I got indicted in 89, and then I got re-indicted again in, in, in March of 90. I got re-indicted on another case. So I had two state cases. I put them all together, and I got a one and a third to four. I went away in 91 for 16 months. I got out in 92, October of 92, and I started making a lot of money then, a lot of money. I, had, I took over a vending company. I had a lot of all, all, all illegal activities, no le- nothing legit. I had like chop shops and credit card thing. I was just had my hands in everything, not drugs, pretty much mostly just everything else. I got remarried. I had a daughter. And then um, in 95, I got indicted in, uh, for a big bookmaking case out of Brooklyn and Queens. Big bookmaking case. Um, Gambino family, all that bullshit. It's funny because to backtrack a minute, in, in 89, when I got arrested with the numbers, it was on the front page of the news. John Gotti crew, 14 million a year. Now, John had nothing to do with it. It was my father's business. John had nothing to do with it. So when I get out on bail, I go to the to the Bergen Fish Club. And of course, you know, I walk in, he goes, hey, where's my money? I go, what money? He goes, we made 14 million last year. I didn't get 10 cents. I said, yeah. I said, you think it's funny? I said, I'm going to go back to jail. You want to break my balls? Where's my money? He was breaking my balls. Where's my money? He goes, we made 14 million last year. I didn't get 10 cents. Yeah. So 
I got indicted again in 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 eighty nine in uh, in in ninety five for bookmaking. I took a plea. I got a two to four. While I was in prison doing that bid, I got indicted by the feds in Miami with Nikki Carrazza and Lenny Di Maria, all captains in a, on a big RICO case with a murder conspiracy and Shylock and extortion. I got indicted on a big case in Miami. The marshals took me to Florida. I took a plea. I got 10 years. And then I wind up going back to the state. I finished that. I went back to the feds. I did five years in the feds. I was cellmates with the Westwood. Uh, I don't know if you ever, heard of, you ever heard of the Westies, that Irish crew from Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. guys. Evan Kelly was my cellmate for four years. Yeah. I said, Tom, I see, saw you more in your underwear than I saw my, my second wife in her panties. I used to tease him all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he was my cellmate. He was a good guy. Kevin Kelly. Uh, and then I wind up getting 10 years. I wind up doing eight years and three months. I got out in 04. I was supposed to get straightened out again. Um, and then I got indicted for the murder. And then in 05, I got arrested in front of my son's house by the feds for the murder. And then um, a year later, I decided to cooperate. Like, you know, I was, I was done, you know, and that was it. Let's go back, Anthony. Could you take yeah. us through the day you became a made man? I never got made. I got proposed. Oh, so was that frustrating for you then, not to become made? Well, you know what? It's, this is what happened. So in 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 uh, in um, in eighty in eighty nine, I got proposed, and I got I went to I got arrested and went to prison. I got out in ninety two. Um, they I, I was supposed to get straightened out again, and I got arrested again because my father was still alive. Tony was Tony Lee died in ninety three. Then my father wanted, I was waiting to get straightened out and I got arrested again. When I went to, I went to jail again. When I got out in 04, they sent for me. Nikki Carraza's guy, Lenny DiMaria, sends for me and he tells me, listen, we passed your name around again. Everything's approved. He says, this is the situation. He goes, you go on sit downs. Everybody knows you. Everybody's equal. He goes, you don't need anybody representing you. The only thing we didn't have yet is the ceremony, but everybody knows that you could deal with things on your own and then he started telling me who's who this guy's a captain and he started schooling me on all the what i needed to know so basically i had the respect of a wise guy because they sent word out that i could go on sit downs and everything but they just didn't have the actual ceremony um which they which is common the ceremony was supposed to be like about they said around christmas time and a week and a half later i got arrested for the murder and I was under house arrest. So every time I was waiting for the ceremony, I guess it was like divine intervention. Every time I was waiting for the ceremony, I got arrested or I was in prison. It was like three times, three different situations. But the last time is when I came the closest because they actually sent word out that I could go on sit downs and everything. I didn't need anybody representing me. And, uh, you know, so that was it. But I never actually had the had the ceremony like like my friend Michael. <laughs> you know, me and Michael have a lot in common. We're, we're tight, me and me and Michael have a lot in common. His father, you know, his my father could have been strained out with his father too. His father loved my father when my father was a kid. Sonny and my father were tight, very tight. Yeah. So in the in the in the interim, in the middle of you going away and getting you know getting your time going to the joint. Can you tell us a little bit about your crew? Did you have your own crew? Were you under a captain? 
You said you were doing, you know, the credit cards. And yeah, no, I, I had, I had my own little crew. I had, I had my own crew, you know, kids, that, guys I grew up with. My, my father's godson, little Joe, he was a good guy. I had this other kid, Robert Angle. Um, I had Sal Peck. I had, a, I had my own little crew. We all went to jail together in the 70s. We were all on the same cases. My father, you know, they were always with my father. My father loved them. You know, Sal, my friend Sal had no father. My father, like, adopted him. No, we had a tight crew. We did everything together. You know, we were good. When I was a kid in the 70s, we were in this place called the Limehouse. And this old-time wise guy told me one day, he goes, you're, so, you're not lucky you are. You got all these kids around you, all these good kids around you. He told me, you're going to go places. That's what he told me. Go, you got used kids are gonna go play. Yeah, we went right to jail. We went. Yeah. We went, oh, yeah. We, went yeah, we went up the river. No, I had my own crew. I had my own crew, but we were always around my my father and Tony Lee, you know, his partner. We didn't have, you know, we answered to them. They never really, we never, we never really had to kick up much because he was my father. You know what I mean? Like, so a lot of other guys were jealous, you know what I mean? Like his yeah. guys, like my father's guys, the older guys were a little jealous. Because, you know, we didn't really have to kick up anything because he wasn't going to take money off me and my father. And his partner loved me. His partner, you know, was like my second father. So, yeah, we had our own crew. We did everything together. We went to jail together. Um, you know, we you know we conspired to hurt. We did a lot of violent things together. You know, um, yeah, I had, I had my own crew. Were you always with the Gabinos? And when Gotti and the Bull took out Paul, how did that affect your life? Well, when I, when I, when it happened, so I was always close with John. And when it happened, I was home watching TV and, uh, and, it, and it came on the TV, like, you know, they interrupted the show to say that, you know, Paul Castellano was just murdered in Manhattan. So I jumped up and I ran to the phone and I called up my father's partner, Tony Lee. And uh, I said, Paul just got shot and he, and it was funny because the way he said, I know, like I said, like I knew he knew, like knew, knew, you know what I mean? Like the way he answered me, like I went, oh, fuck, like it did, didn't hit me, like holy shit. And I hung up the phone and then the next day I went to the club and he told me the deal. He was in on the whole planning of it, Tony Lee, and and uh, and they used his mother's house for meetings when John became the official boss. I actually went. That Christmas, John had his first big Christmas party, and I actually went was invited to the Christmas party because it was all made guys and a couple of other guys that weren't officially made like me, but we were invited to the Christmas party. Matter of fact, the feds had a lot of pictures of that Christmas party, and I went to that Christmas party with John a couple of weeks after that murder. How did it affect me personally? Well, I started making a lot more money. You know, now I'm with John Gotti. He's the boss. Everybody knows my relationship with him. Tony Lee was always with him. They were tight. He loved my family. So it helped me a lot. It gave me some prestige. It helped me and hurt me more because, you know, because he put us all on front street. Let's not forget that. I mean, we were exposed and we all knew we were exposed and we all knew that eventually it was going to hurt us in the end. But, you know, but, you know, it, it was financially it helped me. Um, it gave me some more prestige because of my relationship with him. So it opened up some doors for me because everybody knew I was close to him, you know, uh, in a personal way, not in a business way, you know, personally close to him. And it helped Tony Lee, you know, it made him earn more money. And he was very tight with John. And, you know, I used to go out with him. So, so now he's the boss and I'm clean now. I'm not drinking or not. I'm like sober, you know, and he loved it. So he would go out like to pastels, this disco in Brooklyn 
or the or, you know, brown derby. You know, you know about pastels, huh? She's laughing, Bruno. He must have been there a few times. We go to we go to pastels, and he'd sit in the back, you know. And I, so and everybody, you know, he's like, and everybody looking. And I come out, and I see girls. Hey, you want to meet John Gotti? And I would take them up to the table and sit there because I, I I liked women. And I would, and then he would lean over to me, and he would say to me. You think you got enough girls at the table? Stop bringing them, yeah. You know, like in my ear, and I go, "All right, yeah." You know, and, and all the and so it was a party, you know. Uh, like I was with him twice. He signed autographs. Like, I, like and when I told my father, my father went, "What is it? Signed autographs? He can't do that." I said, "Well, he did it." I was having lunch with him one day. Me, I drove Tony Lee to a meeting. Tony had a meeting with him in a restaurant in Brooklyn with him and Joe Watts. Joe Watts was one of his main guys. He's an English guy, Joe Watts. Yeah, yeah. The killer. Yeah. So they were having, so it was Tony Lee, myself, John Gotti, and Joe Watts. And we're having lunch. And a couple, a young couple, walked up to him and said, Oh, Mr. Gotti, you know, we read about you. We saw your Time magazine, you know, because Andy Warhol wrote that thing and, you know, the picture of him. We saw, you know, could you give us your autograph? And he went, Yeah, sure. And he gave them his autograph, you know, like, and when I told my father, like, my, and then another time we were walking on Mulberry Street and some people walked up to him and he gave them his autograph. So my father says, what do you mean? Hey, he can't do that. Like the old timers didn't like it. Me, I, it didn't really, you know, I, I, I didn't feel any way about it. You know, my, my father didn't like it. And Tony Lee, oh, he really didn't like it. When we got in the car, is he fucking kidding? How dare him sign an autograph? What is he kidding? You know, like Tony Lee was like, whoa. I said, all right, calm down. You're going to have a heart attack. Relax. <laughs> so, you know, it definitely helped me and it hurt me because you know what? I, you know, I, I got really hot after that. You know, the, the FBI, you know, they were honest night and day. The Organized Crime Task Force in New York State were honest. You know, we always paid the price for having that relationship with John. When we went to jail, we went to the worst prisons. We got the most time. So, you know, it was good and bad, you know, but uh, listen, it, it was the choice I made. You know, I don't blame him for anything. You know, people try to entice me into talking bad about the guy. You know, I don't have anything bad to say about the guy. He was always good to me. He always treated my family well. He always looked out for us. You know, you know, was he a murderer, a drug dealer, a gangster? Yeah, he was definitely all of those things. But personally, he was always good to me. Bruno? Sure. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, everything you did that wasn't legitimate, you know, like Sammy had all the construction companies, Prospect Construction, he had the Plaza Suite. I used uh, to go to Plaza Suite. You used to go there? Too. <laughs> yeah. I with my father. <laughs> I, after, after we do this little interview, I'll tell you about yeah. my old hangouts. But when you said pastels, yeah. they reopened pastels years later. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But uh, now I want to ask you, did you have any legitimate business at all where, you know, like you did construction, you know, you were you were given a no show job with the bricklayers. I was in the IBW. I was local three. I had a a no show job at the Delmonico Hotel as a maintenance man in the Delmonico Hotel on Park Avenue. I had a no show job there for years. Um, I always well, we always owned we always owned bars. My father always owned a bar or a restaurant. So we, we, we always had some kind of legitimate business going, but it wasn't our main source of income. Like me and my brother owned a couple of bars. Um, I had I had a vending company. I had was sort of legit, you know, half legit, half gambling machines, you know. I had a vending company. Um, my, my wife and I had a clothing legitimate. We had a 
we had a corporation, we sold clothes because she's into retail, my second wife. So I had a legitimate corporation with her. But my main source of income was always from illegal sources. Yeah, that was my main source of income. What was Sammy the Bull's reputation like back in the day? What was your relationship with him? And what do you think of his YouTube success? Well, well, I mean, I met him when I was a kid. I met him the first time when he was just a soldier. He was just got straightened out. My father was always good friends with with his captain, Tato, the guy that straightened him out. My father and him sort of came up together. They were in the same crew when they were kids. Um, so my father, I took my father took me to his construction offices years and years ago. Once that's the first time I met him, because my father had a, a drywall business. My father was in the construction business, but not on a, a large scale like Sammy. But he had a company, so uh, we went to see him. That's the first time I met him. Then I really didn't cross paths with him. I hung out in his club that Bruno mentioned. I used to go there all the time with my father. Matter of fact, that's the last place I ever saw Ali Boy Persico. The junior, the kid, Alley Boy, he used to go there too. We, I used to go up there with my father and my sister. So I used to run into him up there. And then um, and then I didn't see him for a while. Then when he became the younger boy, nobody knew he was a tough guy. Everybody knew he did work. You know, everybody respected him. That's why John gave him that position, you know, because everybody respected him. And uh, when he became the younger boy, you know, my relationship with him was good. You know, I, I wasn't that, I mean, I knew him. I, you know, uh, we used to talk, you know, he used to tease me. Uh, a lot of times uh, about girls. I, you know, once I was walking up over, she would, I had these two strippers fly up from Miami for St. Gennaro for the feast. And, uh, and I brought them to the, to the, to the, they want they, of course they wanted to see John Gotti, you know, so I took them to the Raven. I, John wasn't there, but Sammy was there and Junior was there and a couple of guys were there and these two girls were hot. So Sammy was breaking my, you know, teasing me, you know, come on, we'll go to my penthouse. And, oh, you know, she's going to go with my friend Georgie and, you know, F Georgie, you know, he was teasing me. But uh, so I got along with him and I got along with him. You know, he was very stern. You know, he was very stern guy. He would, you know, when, when, when you would walk into the Ravenite, so in the Ravenite, John would sit at the back table and, and, you know, a lot of times Sammy would be standing up next to John like this, like with his arms crossed and, like if you walked up to the table and you went to shake Sammy's hand first, he would like go like this to you. Like, you know, you shake John's hand first, you know, like Tony used to get really mad when he used to do that, when he used to do that to Tony Lee, like, Oh, you know, Mike and Tony, uh, but that, so that, you know, that's how he would, that's who he was. And um, when he cooperated, I was shocked. I was shocked. Cause you know, um, I was in prison. I was in, I was in, uh, I was in prison and this guy, Bobby, who was a wise guy with, uh, with the Gambinos, Bobby, they used to call him Bobby the Jew, but, you know, he wasn't Jewish. That was just his nickname. Uh, he was, uh, so we used to walk the yard, him and I, every night. And I'm waiting for him one night, and he was late to come out, right? So finally, he comes out to the yard, and he goes, oh, my God, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, why? He goes, that guy's co-defendant flipped. That When he said, we used to call John that guy. Whenever you said that guy, we knew it was John. He goes, that guy's co-defendant flipped. I went, who, Frankie? Like, I thought it was Frankie Loke. Like, Sammy wasn't even a thought in my mind. Because I know he was a crazy, you know, killer, hitman, underboss, you know. Like, I said, Frankie flipped? He goes, no, Sammy. I said, Sammy? I was, like, in shock. I said, oh, my God. And then the next thing I said, I looked at him. I go, Sammy? I go, I said, he's finished. I said, John, he's finished. You know, like, that was my next response was, he's finished. And then we just walked down. You know, it was very, it was very, it was a sad night. It was, I felt bad, and uh, for John, 
and we walked around the yard that night, and then, you know, the rest is history. How do I feel about his youth? His child? Yeah, he's good. He, I listen to his stories. A lot of the stories he tells, I know. A lot of the people he talks about, I know. I know the same stories, <laughs> some of them. No, you know, God bless him. You know, listen, the better he does, the better we'll all do. You know, but, you know, he's Sammy the Bull. Listen, he's one of the most famous mob names out there. You know what I mean? Like, he's, you know, he was the underboss. You know, John had... When I was away in the feds, you know, guys that came down that were with John and MCC, when John was fighting that case, that he, like John had made remarks to them that, you know, if Fat Andy was home, I wouldn't be in this position. Because, you know, John needed to make someone, his underboss that was close to the crew in Brooklyn, to Paul Castellanos guys. Because they had a lot of money, they had a lot of power, and he had to keep the peace within his own family. And that's why he chose Sammy. My father fit that bill too, because my father was an old timer. They all, everybody loved them. Them guys, you know, he was, he was close to them. So it was told to me, whether it's true or not, this is what was told to me that he had made remarks to guys in MCC that if Fat Andy was home, he wouldn't be in this mess. So, you know, unfortunately he was in a mess. But I'm happy for Sammy. You know, as long as he don't talk bad about me, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah, he's a great storyteller, and I urge people to go and watch his channel. I mean, Francis and Gravano, the two yeah. Uh, yeah. two of the main channels I go to to watch the old yeah. mafia stories. Well, Michael's great. You know, Michael. He's you know, I love Michael. He's a good. He's a, he's a good guy. He's got a good heart. You know what I mean? He helped me. You know, I did his show. You know. Uh, he texts me all the time, you know, we text back and forth, you know, we may come over to England together, hopefully that will work out, you know, so, uh, yeah, but, you know, Sammy, Sammy, you know, Sammy, Michael's completely different personality than Sammy, you know, Sammy still, Sammy, sometimes he thinks he's still the underboss. <laughs> I'm sure Michael agrees with that, right? <laughs> Sammy sometimes forgets that he's not the younger boss anymore. Always a Bruno. Yeah. So now, you know, we, we talked a lot about, you know, where you are, what you did. You know, one, one remark I want to make, I was surprised when you said, you know, your father's from East New York. That's Lucchese down there. I was surprised that he went over to the Gambinos, but you explained that and that made sense that he got picked up. Yeah. I want to know now, Anthony, what, what, what are you doing now? What, what, what's going on with your life now? I know, I know you say you're remarried. You know, what do you got going on? How's your life going now that everything is, well, you know? So what happened was after I made the decision to, you know, to cooperate, which was a very, very tough decision. It took me, you know, a, it was very hard. But after I made that decision, um, so I was living in, in, I was living in another, I was living in, in Michigan and I got a call from a friend of mine that, that ran a, a drug treatment center and he offered me a job as a counselor. And he said, but I would have to go back to school and they would pay for the school. So he says, why do you, you know, what makes you think I could be a counselor? He says, well, because of your life experience, because you're in recovery, you're clean a lot of years. He goes, you know how to stay clean. You know, you changed your life. You're not a criminal no more. You know, you have a lot to offer. I told the owner of the treatment center your story. I didn't tell him everything, but he, he, he thinks you, you, he also thinks you'll be a good counselor. So I said, so I decided to do it. So I packed up, I got my car, me and my cat, and I drove to another state. 
and I went to work in this trap in this treatment center. I went back to school and I became a counselor in a treatment center. So I've been doing that. Well, now I'm not a counselor. Now I'm a, beha- I'm a behavioral health technician now. Um, I was a counselor for a few years. Um, I went back to school um, for addiction to become an addiction specialist. Um, I finished the school uh, and I was a counselor for a few years. And that place, unfortunately, went out of business. And then I went, then I became a lead behavior health technician. Now I'm a health technician. And now I just got offered another position as a, a, a missions counselor. So I may, I may take it. I'm not sure I'm on the fence with it. I just got offered another position. So I'm, I'm working in treatment centers and then I have some stuff going with, you know, my podcast, I have a podcast, you know, reformed gangsters because I'm a reformed gangster. You know, I did some shows on Netflix. I got some coming out on Netflix and I'm trying to, you know, get my story out there. But basically I'm, I'm working in treatment. That's what I do. I try to help people change their lives, stay clean. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make up, I'm trying to get some forgiveness, make up for my past, my past sins. I don't know. So it's, it's, it's there's, a, there's a few of us that are doing that. Yeah, you yeah. still not dabbling in today. You know, yeah, you still yeah. don't got the lions okay. in the fire. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, I, I miss, sometimes I miss my old life. I miss the money. I mean, I can't say I don't miss the cash. I mean, I was, you know, but I miss the action. You know, I miss the respect. I miss you know, like I tease my daughter all the time. You know, I go to concerts. You know, I used to sit in the front row. Now, like, I got to sit in the back. You know, I used to tell her, you know. I, so it's funny, you know, my daughter. So I was out in L.A. This is how my life changed. How much. So I'm out. I, I was out in L.A. I went to do the Larry Mezzer show out in L.A., right? So I'm out in L.A. So Michael Francis. So Dua Lipa, my daughter loves her. And I like her too. She's in, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's a big singer now, Dua Lipa. She was doing a show at the forum. So Michael, I asked Michael, Michael, you know, like the mob, Michael, you got, you know, anybody that can hook me up for this concert? He goes, I don't know, let me look into it, right? So I go, all right. So a couple of weeks go by. So I, so Michael gets back to me, he goes, tell your daughter, Uncle Michael hooked everything up. You know, like I said, all right, no problem. So I go to the forum. So now I go to the VIP booth, I get the tickets. Right. And I get the wristbands for the VIP lounge. Right. So now I go into the, my daughter in the VIP lounge and all the celebrities are there and I'm sitting there and my daughter, she, she looks, she goes, you used to live like this all the time. I said, yeah, I used to live like this because I, I can't believe this. She goes, look where we are. She goes, you used to live like this all the time. I said, yeah, yeah. I used to live like this all the time. That's what I miss. You know, not for my ego, you know, I miss, you know, to have them live that way, you know, have them experience that. And, and, you know, and this, and, you know, and then the tickets, you go in an elevator and you come out and there's a security guard and you show the guy the armband and he opens up the door, you walk out and there's the stage right there. My daughter's like, you know, it's just a great experience, you know? And so, and Michael, you know, real Michael hooked it all up like the old days, you know, called the, you know, so it was cool. So I'm glad she got a chance to experience that. But, you know, my answer to your question basically is I'm content. I got any, got any regrets? Yeah, sure. I got regrets. I got regrets of what I did to my sister. I have regrets. I have regrets about all the time I did. I have regrets that I never just stood in school, you know, but, uh, but do I have any, you know, did I have, did I live a, I lived, I lived a big life. I mean, I lived, you know, I lived a big life. I did, you know, I did live the big life. Um, it was really good for a while and then it got really bad, you know, so 
you know, but, but, but at the end of the day, you know, right now I, I could say that I'm content, you know, I'm happy where I'm at, you know, I, I mean, financially I struggle now and then, but you know, the whole country is struggling right now, you know, it's not, I'm not, a, you know, uh, it took some getting used to becoming like a, a, a productive member of society, you know what I mean? It took some getting used to, you know, it's, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you could identify with that. Yeah. So, you know, but, um, you know, it's weird now because what happened was, you know, nobody knew who I was where I lived, you know, for years, I was under assumed name, you know, and I was a counselor. No, and I, you know, and, you know, and it was like, I was, it was weird because, you know, um, um, I would be like out at a party and like a Frankie Valley song would come on. And I, you know, and I can't like say to the guy next to me, like he used to eat dinner at my house, you know, like, <laughs> like Frankie Valley, or like a David Bowie song would come on. I go, yeah, I still had coke with him. You know, you know, you know, I hung out with David Bowie, you know, like you hung out with David Bowie, you know, like, you know, so it was, but now, so now that I, now that I'm on social media, you know, now that I have all this stuff going on with the podcast and the shows and, you know, I was on the TV and now people know who I am. So now it's like, you know, I had to reveal myself to a point. So it's like different now. So people, some people are laughing about it. Some people are like, whoa. Some people say, what should we call you now? We don't know what to call you by your real name or the name you've been using for the past seven years. You know, like, so it's kind of funny. So you've talked about murders and violence to other people. What about brushes with death that you may have had? What have been your scariest moments? The scariest moments was, you know, I had guns pointed at me. You know what I mean? I got shot at a couple of times. Um, could, could could you give us the backstories for those? Yeah, well, it was one time coming out. of this, We used to hang out in the spa. My friend Sal had a beef with this kid, uh, with this other kid named Sal. And him and I walked out of the bar and the kid was across the street. He started shooting at Sal, but I was with him. So we both had a duck behind cars. Another time I was in a club and... um two guys next to me were arguing and one guy pulled out a gun and he shot the guy in the face and I was standing right there. And then, and the guy just was staring at me and I'm staring at him and I'm going, Oh, this fucking guy's going to shoot me. And the guy just put the gun away and he ran out the door. You know, it was kind of scary. Um, one time I had a, so the, one of the scariest times too was, so my friend Louie, he stabbed this kid on Queens Boulevard years ago in front of this club called the monastery that this guy from Corona owned, Lenny Mondrapani, he was around Tough Tony, Corona. So they owned a disco on Queens Boulevard and, and a fight broke out and my friend Louie and Carl, they stabbed this kid. And the kid went to the hospital and then this kid Gregory got in touch with me, who lived on the low east side. He was with, um, his father was a wise guy. His father was, was Eddie Dolls, was, that was his nickname. His father was a wise guy with my father's family, the Gambinos. And he knew me, Gregory, who he had later on got murdered too. He came to see me. He goes, listen, these kids want $2,000. Otherwise, they're going to give you, this kid's going to give your friend Louie up. They could stop him. So you want to go see them and give them the money. I go, yeah, I don't want Louie to get, get arrested. So I don't know if you ever saw that movie, The Gangs in New York. You ever see the movie, The Gangs in New York? Sure. The on the capital. You know what them tunnels on the Lower East Side? Well, them tunnels are still there. Yeah, five there. points. Right, yeah. Five I went there, and now they took me in those tunnels. And I'm walking in them tunnels. I'm going, what am I, out of my mind in these tunnels? You know, and they took me in these tunnels, and that's where I met these kids in them tunnels. That was a little scary moment for me. Another scary moment was me to get arrested was Neil's son and his cousin, Sally, had shot somebody. They killed somebody. 
and they came into a diner in downtown Manhattan, and I was with them, and two cops walked into the diner, and Buddy handed me a gun under the table, and said, here, hold this, and I took it. I didn't know they just shot somebody with it, and I put it in my pants, because the cops didn't know me. They knew him, and I walked out, and I got rid of the gun. Two days later, my father comes downstairs in the basement, because I lived in the basement, and he tells me, what did you do the other night? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I saw Buddy, and he told me, oh, your son did me a big favor the other night. What the, is there something wrong with you? I go, what was I supposed to do? Tell him, no, I didn't know he shot somebody with the gun, you know, so that was a little scary. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I had some brushes with that, but, you know, shot at, I got hit with, you know, bottles in the head. One time a guy tried to stab me, and he went to stab me, and the kid, this guy, Sally Minichello, had, there was a ceramic ashtray on the bar. He hit the guy with the ceramic ashtray, and the guy dropped the knife. We had a big sit-down over that. My father had a big sit-down with these wise guys from Mulberry Street. Of course, this kid was with one of them, this guy, Doc Philly, Black Phil, they used to call the guy, and we had a big sit-down because the kid tried to stab me. What was the conversation at the sit-down like? <laughs> That's a good question. The conversation at the sit-down was my father wanted to kill the kid that tried to stab me, and Philly, the guy that was sitting down for me, said, well, he, you know, he, he wants to apologize. So he goes, oh, so in other words, if my son was dead in the coffin, he's going to come out up to the coffin and apologize to me? You know, so they, they but, so the kid wasn't there that tried to stab me, but he, Philly, the guy that sat down for him wanted to get him to apologize, and my father wouldn't accept the apology. So I never really saw the kid anymore. You know what, you know what happened? That was in the early 70s. In 1979, I'm in Arthur Kill. This kid rolls into Arthur Kill. Scared to death. Now, he is. I'm there. Scared to death. Because now I'm there. I got the whole place locked up, right? Right? I got, I'm in, I'm in a, listen, I'm living in a four, I'm living in a five-man room with four murderers and me. People used to tell me, how do you sleep in that room? I said, I feed them veal cutlets. My father brings up veal cutlets every week. Yeah, yeah. I feed them veal cutlet sandwiches. Yeah. Uh, so, so he was, he, but I, you know, he was an Italian kid. You know, it was when we were younger. He came up, he apologized, you know, we, and we, we ended up becoming sort of friends and, you know, and went, you know, and that was the end of it. But that, that was a big sit down. My father wanted to kill him. And one of my brother's friends actually got murdered. My brother's best friend actually got murdered right in front of my house by the Colombos. And we had a big sit down over that too with Paul Cascarano. Um, he had stabbed somebody's son and they and they they made out they didn't know who he was and they killed him in the park across from my house. And then we had a big sit down with Paul Castellano. And Paul Castellano told my father that he had to forget about this one. And, you know, it was a whole big thing. And a couple of my friends got shot. One died, two lived. Anthony Stabile, another wise guy with the Lucchese, he shot my friend Bobby. My father had a big sit down over that. Um, that's the life. That's that's what happens out there. Bruno? Yeah, Anthony Stabile. Uh, you know, the funny thing, you just mentioned Anthony's name. Him yeah. and your dad were mentioned in Goodfellas. Do you want yeah. to tell Sean about that? Yeah, so so that that bar, that scene in Goodfellas was the Bamboo Lounge. That was the yeah. name of the that was the name of the bar. My father was very good friends with the Varios my whole life. Like my father, Dave Vario, my father's 
Paulie's brother, Babe, was very tight with my father. They went out together all the time with my the, their wives with my mom and, you know, his wife and very good friends with them. And uh, so my father, when I was a kid, my father used to bring me by Paulie's house in Canarsie because my father used to do, my father and Paulie always had crap games together in the 60s. They did a lot of business together, my father and Paulie. They were very tight, very tight. And uh, so that was, and my, when I got older, my father used to take me to the Bamboo Lounge. And it's funny because when that movie came out, so I'm in the movie theater with my friends. And the first time I went to see it, I'm in the movie theater with my friends and they're panning that crew. And then when they said Fat Andy, all my friends, that's your father in the middle of the movie theater. And I went, oh, and like everybody, I didn't know, you know, and they screamed like, oh, that's your father. And I said, oh shit, you know, but my father, you know, my father never liked Henry. Henry, my father did not like him. And Henry Hill knew my father didn't like him. And my father was actually in jail with Paulie in Missouri. They were in that prison hospital. And we used to go visit them. Me, Tony Lee, Danny Cateo, Pete the Killer, the Paulie's son. We all used to fly to Missouri together and go visit them. And my father used to tell Paulie in the visit room, I told you, I never liked that fucking Henry Hill. And Paulie used to go, please don't break my balls. You know, I used to tell my father, please don't stop breaking my balls about Henry. But I knew all of them. When I saw that movie, it was like sort of blew me away because I knew all of them intimately. Tommy D. Simone used to take me out with him. I mean, you know, he would come to my father's bar in Brooklyn, Bulldogs, because he was good friends with this guy, Paulie G, that was with my father. And he would come there to pick Paulie G up. And I would be there. And I was like 18 and 19. And he would tell me, you want to come out with me? And I go, yeah. And he would tell my father, I'm going to take your son with me tonight. And my father's telling him, don't get my son in no trouble. No, are you kidding me? No. As soon as I got out in the car, he used to pull out boom, a bag of coke. Yeah. As soon as I got in his car. It was like crazy. My father, actually, Bobby DeSimone, Tommy's brother, was my father's co-defendant in Florida. They were on the same case together. So I had a very intimate relationship with all of them. And it was sort of like that movie hit home for me because that's how I was. That was like sort of my life, too. You know, the Copa. I, I used to go to the Copa with my father through the basement, through the kitchen, you know, always, you know, with the table. I sat, always went to the Copa. Um, I used to go there on my own with my girlfriend, my wife, my girlfriend at the time. So I was in and out of the Copa and uh, Jimmy Burke. I, you know, I dated his daughter, Kathy, when we were kids. She was like one of my first girlfriends. So it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an experience. Which leads, to, about. which leads to the question, how realistic are mafia movies? Do you have some favorites and are there others that you think are silly? Well, I think my two favorites are Goodfellas and Casino. I like, I think those are, The Godfather was a great movie, but, you know, the end is not realistic. I mean, you know, they're not going to kill my, it's funny because when my father, when The Godfather came out, my father didn't go see it right away. So then one day my father comes up, comes, gets up and he says to me, listen, I want to go see The Godfather today, but don't tell nobody. So I call up my two friends, his godson Joey and my friend Sal, and we take him to the theater to see The Godfather for the first time. And we walked out. He goes, that was good, but the end was bullshit. They could never kill all the bosses in one day. So I think, I think Goodfellas is probably the most realistic one. I like Casino. I like The Sopranos. I mean, outside of him going to he would have got killed. Nobody's going to go see a, psychi- a psychiatrist in that position, any position. Listen, I know for a fact how the, how the mob deals with mental illness. So I'm sure you've you ever heard of Vito Guzzo. 
I'm sure you know who Vito Guzzo is, right? The kid that's doing, well, his father, Vito, Vito Sr., was a wise guy with the Colombo family that was very, very tight friends with my father. He had a legitimate nervous breakdown. Back then, nobody knew bipolar. Today, everything has an initial. Back then, nobody knew nothing. They called you crazy, retarded, whatever. But today, you know, so he had a legitimate nervous breakdown. He went into a psych ward. He got out. Matter of fact, when he got out, he came to see my father in the bar. I was there that night. He walked in because his son, Anthony, Guzzo used to stay with me. And um, he had another nervous breakdown. And he went into the psych unit again for the second time. And he came out and he disappeared off the face of the earth. That's how the mob deals with mental illness. So, but the Sopranos had a lot of real stuff in it, like a lot of real stuff in it. They definitely had some some street advisors advising them on some stuff without a doubt. There's a couple of things in there that someone said might've been that someone around my father was telling them with robbing the poker games and all that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some of them was, some of them, like this other this thing they've got on, 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 um, on uh, prime time, the Godfather of Harlem, like that's, that's complete nonsense. I mean, Bumpy Johnson was a, was a gangster in his own right, but with that chintz, that's all, that's complete, complete fabrication, bullshit. Matter of fact, I even asked Rita, because I'm friends with Rita Giganti, the chin's daughter who did a show with me recently, and I, I tease her about it. I go, what do you think of The Godfather of Holland? She goes, oh, please, my sister and I hate that show. Bruno. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit, Anthony, about your uh, your connections in Brooklyn. Did you ever uh, did you ever have any dealings with anybody in Sheepshead Bay or uh, downtown Brooklyn? Um, no, I mean, yeah, we had we had we had dice games. Well, I mean, I worked in a lot of dice games where all the families had like stuff to do. You know, downtown Brooklyn. I mean, no, I never really, I never really, you know, I stood in Queens. I mean. My businesses were all in Brooklyn, my vending companies, my number of business, but they were like in, in the hood. You know what I mean? Um, but I worked in a lot of crap games with a lot of guys from those neighborhoods, you know, because back then, so the crap games, not like, so the crap game, every family had something to do with the crap games. Like the Gambino family was the banker, the Lucchese families were the Shylocks, the Banana family, they booked the money, they, they, they booked the numbers, you know. So every crew had a had a had guys in there. So I, I mean I I did business with a lot of people, but not you know, in the in the actually in that neighborhood. Right. But we all worked together. We all had our hands in everything. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the chin, and I, some of my favorite Francis stories were about the chin when he was in England here recently. Have you got any chin stories? Because the British public, you know, they're not that familiar with I, a lot of this. Listen, stuff. I only saw him once. The first time I only. I only, my father knew him good. My, well, I have once, well, when Frank Costello got shot in the hallway, all right, and the bullet grazed his head. So my father got picked up for that, for that shooting. My father got picked up for that shooting in the chin. The chin is the one that actually did it. But my father fit the same description as the chin, you know, short, stocky, dark hair, you know, and they actually took my father to that hallway, the homicide, the, the detectives, because there was a witness or whatever, and they made my father run up and down that hallway, and then they let him go. So my father's telling me to stop. I, I just lost you. Oh, it's all right. Keep going. I got to change my battery. Uh, 
So my <laughs> father said they took him in for that homicide, that shooting, not homicide, that shooting, because they, they took him in back then for everything. And uh, they let him go because the chin is the one that did it. And I told my father, after told me the story, I said, I said, you sure you didn't do it? He goes, no, I didn't do it. I said, how do I, what do you mean? He goes, if I did it, he would have been dead. He told me, I said, oh, he goes, I would have never left that hallway if he was, he said, I would have never left that hallway if he was alive. So the first time I saw the, the chin, I, my father had to go to the club on Sullivan Street to meet somebody. So I went with him and uh, we came out of the club and I saw him across the street. He had a robe on and he was talking to somebody. So I told my father, I go, what is that guy standing over there talking to that guy with a robe on? So my father, that's the chin. I said, that's the chin. And as we're walking to the car, he looked up and he saw my father and he just, you know, nodded to my father. Hello. And my father, you know, nodded back to him. And we got in the car left. I said, that was the chin. He goes, yeah, it was the chin. He walks around with a robe on. He said, it makes out he's crazy. But that's the only time I saw him. My father met him a few times. My father knew him from, you know, when they were younger, you know, from the 50s. My father knew him. But I, I, I had some incident. I knew his brother. I had, some, I had an incident with his brother. I, I, I had his, one, a wise guy around him threw a punch at me. This guy, Dom DeSailor, John Gotti sent me, this, John Gotti had to send this guy money before he was the boss. So he gives me money to bring to, because he asked me if I know the guy. And I said, yeah, I know the guy. Dom DeSailor. So he goes, okay, listen, go to Manhattan, to his club and bring him this money. So he made Tony Roach come with me. I don't know if you know who Tony Roach is. He was one of John's guys. So he makes Tony Roach call me. So I go to Sullivan Street and I walk in and the guy's, and he's sitting at the table and he looks up at me and he says, uh, I said, you know, he goes, what are you doing here? I go, John sent me. He goes, John sent you. He goes, you can't talk to me. You're not on my level. I said, listen, I'm not here to talk about levels and because I'm here to give you some money. So I give him the money. It was short. He counts the money. He goes, this is what he sent you? Was what's he playing cards? He's too busy to come. He was. He was playing pinochle. Because what is he playing cards? He's too busy to come here. I said, I don't know what he's doing. He just listen, Dom. He sent me here with the money. This is what I'm doing here. I'm not here to debate it. So he took off. He takes his glasses off and he throws them at me. They hit me in the chest. And I go, What are you doing? He goes, What am I doing? And he gets up and he goes to like this with his hand. And I grab his arm and I twist it behind his back and I put him up against the wall. And he's going. And now he and I'm going, Dom, don't hit me. Now Tony Roach is running. He's ready to hit, hit him. And I tell Tony Roach, no, don't hit him. Right. And, I, and he's struggling. I go, listen, I'm going to let you go, Dom. Don't hit me, please, because we're going to hurt you. Don't hit me. And I let him go. And he goes, get the fuck out of here. You tell John. I he, And he's ranting and raving. I get in the car. I go back to Ozone Park. I go back to the Bergen Fish Club. I walk in, Jeannie's got his, he goes, what happened? I go, what happened? I said, Dom sailor to a punch at me. He goes, doesn't he, does he know who you are? Well, yeah, he knows who I am. I met him with my father 10 times. He knows who I am. So then I tell John what happens, right? They get me in a car. They put me in a car, Tony Lee, my father, Tony Lee, Jeannie, Johnny. We get in a car, we go to Manhattan. My father was in Florida. We go to the Ravenite. We go to the Ravenite, we walk in. John tells me, tell Neil the story on Neil. I tell Neil the story once, twice, three times. I go, Neil, how many times do you want me to tell you the story? The guy threw a punch at me. Neil's going, I don't, I can't believe this. John's screaming, I'll start a war over this. Because now he's, he's out of his mind, right? And I'm going, oh, my God, right? And they're, now they're all talking. I walk outside to smoke a cigarette. Outside, there's this guy, Mo Chink. That was his name. He was one second, guys. 
he was an old, old guy, mob guy, like from the Black Hand days, like old, right? And he's out there and he's smoking a cigarette too. And he looks at me, he goes to me, you know where your father is right now? I go, yeah, he's in Florida. He goes, listen, he goes, go around the corner, call your father, and tell him to come right to New York. He goes, and don't go anywhere with anybody unless your father's with you. Anybody, Tony Lee, don't go anywhere with anybody. You understand what I'm telling you? He, I said, yeah, I get it. I went around the corner to a payphone. I called my father up in Miami. I told him, listen, Tom sailor to a punch at me. He goes, what? I'll be on the next flight. I hung up the phone. He goes, get out of Manhattan. Leave, go get, get out of Manhattan right now. I go, all right. I got I got in a cab and I left. I, I just left. I got in a cab and I went home. We flew in that night and I picked, he flew in on Eastern Airlines. I picked them up that night. The next night, next day we went to the Ravenite. And then John, my father, and Tony Lee went to back to the club on Sullivan Street and they sat down with the Chin's brother and Tom DeSailor. And Tom DeSailor told a whole different story. And my father told him, that's not what happened. He goes, so Dom DeSailor says, what are you calling me, a liar? He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah. He goes, and I'm going to tell you another thing. If you ever put your hands on my son again, I'm going to put you right through the ground. He told him, you understand what I'm telling you? He goes, remember one thing. I'm not a politician. He goes, I'm a gangster. He went like this. He took his tie and he went, I'm not a politician. I'm a gangster. Use politic. Because now they're politicking about what's transpired. He goes, I'm not a, I'm not a politician. I'm a gangster. He goes, I'm not. So the next time you disrespect me or my family, I'm going to put you right through the ground. And he told Tony, now let's go. And we got up and we walked out and we left John there with them. And we walked out and we got in the car and we left. We went back to the Ravenite. We walked in the Ravenite. Neil said, where's John? He goes to my father, what did you do? He goes, what did I do? I told them I'm not a politician. I'm a gangster. They want a politics. They could politic all they want. I don't want no apologies. I don't want to know nothing. Just make sure my son don't get hurt. And that's the end of it. And then John came back and he goes, what the fuck did you do? He said, you know, and, and then they just laughed it off, but they straightened it all out. But it was scary. That was a little scary for a minute because, you know, my father was out of town and, you know, now there's all wise guys involved and captains and underbosses and, you know, I know the protocol. This guy's a wise guy. Even though he threw a punch at me, I put my hands on him. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, like, so, you know, and he, you know, it was like, and then I got the Genovese family, which is powerful, and the Gambino family, and I'm in the middle of these two monsters. You know what I mean? Like, it was, that was a little scary, especially when Mo Chink, the old man, told me not to go with nobody. You know, he told me not to go with anybody, even Tony Lee. That was kind of a little... That made me a little nervous when he told me not even to go with Tony Lee. Wow, this has been absolutely fascinating. We've just got about 10 minutes left. Did you, what's your thoughts on Joe Bonanno Sr.? And did you have any dealings with those guys? Joe Bonanno Sr., the guy with my thoughts, my thoughts is he's the one that he roomed us with that book, with that Rico. He roomed us. I mean, you know, what he did with that book, I mean, look look at all the, I mean, that book was, uh, they made the commission case out of the book. I never had any dealings with him. I mean, I had dealings with guys in his family, like uh, Joe Messina, I was good friends with. You know, he became the boss of the Bonanno family. I was good friends with Joe Messina. You know, um, I had a lot of conversations with him. I, um, I was fr- I was good friends with um I was good friends with um um 
finished Sarah, you know, he was a captain in the Bonanno family. So I had, I had dealings with, with a lot of guys that were in the Bonanno family, but the old man, I never knew him, but uh, I knew people that came after him. Rust, Ru, Ru, uh, uh, Philip Rusty, he was good friends with my father. He was the boss before uh, Joe Messina. But uh, the biggest relationship I had out of with any of the Bananas probably was with Joe Messina because I knew him since I was a kid. So do you think that that fall of the Italian mafia in America was exacerbated by Gotti putting everybody on front street, as you said earlier? Yeah, I think it's, I think, I think it started when probably after the books were open in the seventies, I mean, they started straightening out a, a lot of guys that weren't even criminals. I mean, you know, you're straightening out guys that never did, they never went to prison Never, you know, they weren't even criminals. They were legitimate guys. They were just big earners, you know what I mean? And they got to get straightened out. And then guys were dealing drugs. They were getting thousands of years. Then they, you know, they developed the witness protection program where now, you know, you're going to be protected. You're going to get supported. You're going to get, you know what I mean? So, so the world started changing and, 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 and then John put everybody on front street. So that started a lot of investigating. I mean, you know, the Gambino film had captains that they didn't even know who they were. And John made them come to the Ravenite once a week. So yeah, so he put everybody on Front Street. So and, and yeah, yeah, that was the, and that was the end of it. And he put it out. He put it on the front page. But I think it started before it started to crumble before John. He just was the final straw. So what is the presence of the Italian mafia in modern day America? I think it's kind of pretty much over. I mean, it's not like it was. It's not, you know, my father, the last conversation I had with my father before he passed away, I was in Elmira. It was in 1998. He came to visit me in 1998 before, before I, he died. He died in 99. I'll never forget. And we're sitting in the visiting room and he comes to visit me. And he goes, listen, I'm opening up uh, import export with a big warehouse. We're going to sell fruit and vegetables. So I looked at him, I go, he goes, I may, I'm partners with this kid in Philadelphia because he was good friends with Joey Molina, the boss of Philly. And they had a big produce business in Philadelphia and he met them all in prison, this kid, Billy, and they were going to open up this big produce company. He goes, I'm opening up a big produce company with Billy and Joe and, 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 and Joey Molina. And it's for you when you come home. I said, it's for me when I come home. What are you talking about? He goes, the, 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 our life is over. I said, what are you talking about? Why is it over? He goes, because the two things we had gone for us are finished. I said, what's that? He goes, everybody feared us and nobody cooperated. He goes, nobody fears us anymore and people are cooperating. He goes, it's over. And he was right. It's over. So I was going to go into the fruit and vegetable business, but he passed away on me. So that never transpired. Yeah. So do you think the rise of the cartels contributed to that? They took control of most organized crime? I think I think that and a lot of eth- in New York City, there's a lot of ethnic groups that 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 are that are making money. Like a lot of you know, like you got a you got the Russian mob, you got the Albanians, you got the Dominicans, you got the Colombians. I mean, I did business with a lot of them with my vending company. I had vending machines in a lot of uh, Dominican after hour clubs and you know Colombian after hour clubs and the Russians. You know, it's a very competitive now, very competitive because of all these different ethnic groups. And it's a different, different geographic, you know, it's different. And the mob is not killing nobody no more. How are you going to kill somebody? There's cameras everywhere. There's cameras and doorbells. The, the world is different. You know, I tell people, like, 
I wouldn't even know how to make money today in the street. The way I made money in the street would be impossible to do today. With all the technology and the cameras and the surveillance and the internet, it would be impossible. To be a bookmaker, when I was a kid, you had to rent a, it was a whole big process. Today, you get a website and you're a bookmaker. <laughs> Today, you get a website and you're a bookmaker. So yeah, I think a lot of things contributed to the downfall of the mob, but I think the biggest thing right now is the, the, the lack of violence. Like even for guys like me and Sammy, People know where we are. I'm not telling them to come get me. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I still look at, make sure, you know, I know. Uh, but I mean, they're not, nobody's coming after me. I'm not saying there's nobody out there that's capable of it. There's people capable of committing murders. Don't get me wrong. But who's going to send them? How are they going to do it? How they, what are they going to get an invisible, uh, one of them things you put over you that makes you invisible, like on TV, you know, how are you going to do it? So it's just a different world. So we'd like to finish with some advice to young people. So, for example, if you're a young man and you've watched Casino or Goodfellas and you think, right, I aspire to that, what do you say to these kids? I say to them, all that glitters isn't gold. And at the end of the day, it's fun for a minute. And then at the end of the day, it's not fun. I say, I know two, I know the biggest gangsters in the world. I knew, I knew John Gotti and my father. To me, they were the two biggest gangsters in the world. John Gotti died chained to a bed in prison, and my father died in the street alone and broke. After doing 13 years in prison, he got out. He had no family, no friends. He was all alone. So, you know, I spent 15 years, 14 years in prison. You know, it, it's it's all that glitters isn't gold. It looks good, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's not. Your family suffers. My, my daughter was three years old when I went to prison. She was 11. My son was 13. When I came out, he was 21. I, my son has been visiting someone in prison his whole life. There's collateral damage to our lifestyles that you have to take into effect. It, it affects people. My lifestyle affected people. All right. Well said. Can you let the viewers know where they can find you, support you, watch you on YouTube, watch your podcasts? Yes, my podcast is reformgangsters.com and I also have a website anthonyrugiano.com please go on my my, my podcast and, and subscribe on my YouTube channel reformgangsters.com yeah and on, videos on there <laughs> on the YouTube version of this we'll, we'll put all your links uh, in the video yeah. below it in the description box for people to click on is yeah. there any anything you want to say into conclusion to the people watching it was, it was really a pleasure I enjoyed you know speaking to everybody I hope someone heard my message that, you know, listen, that lifestyle is good. And then at the end of the day, it's not so good. You know, maybe we reached out to somebody, maybe we could change somebody's mind, save somebody. And uh, it was a pleasure. Oh, same here, brother. Thank you for spending time with us. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about this video. Check out all the links to support Anthony. And don't forget to check him out also on Michael Francis's channel. As It was Michael who highly recommended Anthony come on this channel. So shout out to Michael Francis as well for the recommendation. Cheers, Michael. Thank you. So if you enjoy true crime books, Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Son of the Cali Cartel. You may have seen the Cali Cartel as represented on Narcos. A lot of that was BS. William lays it down in this book, what actually happened. The Cali Cartel, they took over from Pablo Escobar. They were the biggest cartel in the world dealing billions and billions per year, US dollars. And the four heads out of the two most important ones were 
Miguel, which was William's dad, and his brother, Gilberto. When Miguel went to prison and Gilberto went to prison, William was running the cartel. Could you imagine running a multi-billion dollar cartel? And the DEA, war on drugs, they made them public enemy number one. William got shot up in an assassination attempt in a restaurant. The book starts out with that story. His mates got murdered and he just barely made it out alive. So if you want to check it out, it's available worldwide on Amazon as an ebook, audiobook, and paperback. And the link is in the description box below this video. Cheers. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs>